Amen. All right, today what we're talking about is the Lysides. Um, this is a phrase that Jesus uses here in, um, in Matthew 25. You know, this is something all of you already probably know, but the early church, the first two centuries of Christianity grew rapidly, and the church was primarily made up of slaves and the poor class. That was, most historians would say that was about 80% of the church. And the church at this point became a significant minority population in the Roman Empire. Something Michael Green su suggests that the church became about 5% of the Roman Empire by the end of the second century. And it was primarily made up of slaves and the poor. And, you know, that's one of the things that puzzled a lot of the early uh, Roman um, politicians. Like, you're building an entire movement off of people who can give nothing. You're building an entire ministry. They weren't thinking ministry the way we're thinking, but you're building an entire ministry off of a people who could do nothing. You know, a lot of times when you're reading books on how to plant churches, how to start churches, there is no church book I've read, and I've read a fair number, that have ever said, go into the low-income community and plant your church. That just is not good planting strategy. And there's a lot of reasons for it, but there's never been a book that said it. Because they understand that, man, in order for a church to do well in the, in the ideology of most um, church planters, at least in the West, we need financial resources. And yet, when we read the scriptures, if I just gave you guys the Bible, it said, take the teachings of Jesus completely serious in the New Testament. We all would probably open our eyes and be like, this guy really has something to do with our money. Like, he really wants us to be careful with what we call money. Yeah. I, did, I had the benefit of not growing up in our church. And my first read-around of the Gospel of Luke, I remember getting to chapter 19, and I was like, Jesus doesn't want anyone in this world to have money. <laughs> And I remember talking to my campus minister. I'm like, so why do you guys have jobs? Why does anyone in here have jobs? It seems like Jesus is opposed to people working. And he's like, no, Jesus wants us to work. He explained it to him and gave me a richer theology, which I was grateful for. But without someone guiding me, man, I probably wouldn't like, if I got to do this, then I'm never going to work again. And I would have to live on faith and, not, and live on bread from the sky. But I wasn't in Exodus yet, so I didn't believe that either. All right. Jesus came in the flesh not as a wealthy or powerful person in, in terms of the eyes of the world. The world did not view him as wealthy or powerful. He came from a place that Nathaniel was like, can anything good come from there? So Jesus is not from, what's, a, what's, a, what's a, like an influential place, Manhattan? Jesus is not from Manhattan. He's not from Cambridge. Where is another, Los Angeles, Silicon Valley, Shout out to the uh, San Francisco crew over here. But he's not, he's not from any of these places. He came from a place that N.T. Wright thinks there was no more than 300 people in their community. And it was what we would consider farming folk. Just folk who just worked the land and they were not wealthy. Okay. You know, Christianity in our present iteration is still the most charitable. Christians are still the most charitable people in this world. Did you guys know that? Yeah, Christians are still the most charitable. However, it, in a Pew Research, Christian charity has stopped being to your actual neighbor and more to nonprofits. Christians give more money to nonprofits than most people. 
And I think there's good, and, and we don't want to ever discourage anyone from giving to these nonprofits who are doing good work. And yet I think we're missing an aspect of the ministry of Jesus that he wanted us to embody the giving, not only financially, but also giving the person our hearts so that we can know them at a deep and intimate level. And again, like I mentioned, the, the, the criticism of the early church, the elite Roman people struggled with who the Christians allowed to have fellow, who, who they, who they fellowship with in their love feast. If I had not, I'm going to mention this kind of, we're talking about the, the poor. What would you say characterize in, in, in some of the repeated criticism of the early church? What would you say are the top three things that were repeated consistently in the early church that people were like, this is what we don't like about these guys. Money is one. We're going to give you money since we're talking about money. What do you think the other two criticisms are? Judgmental? Actually, no, but that's a good guess. Criticism of who? Of the early church. So, like, people outside of the church in the first two centuries, what were the things that they criticized the most? They hang out with, like, sinners and gross people. That was the religious folk, but not necessarily the Roman, um, the Roman Empire. They worship one God. One more. Not loyal to Rome. Kind of. A manifestation of that. They, um, they eat, they're cannibals. They eat the flesh. That was a criticism. <laughs> totally misunderstood communion, right? <laughs> like we're going to eat the body and blood of Christ. The criticism was that they didn't take part in the military. Like if, if, if someone became a Christian, they jumped out of the military. And the early church, that just scandalized the Romans, like, big time. They did not like that. They're like, how can you be a soldier and then you start worshiping this guy and you take whatever consequences come with it? But then how they treated the poor. It just scandalized a lot of the influential people in Rome. They, like, did not know what to do with this group. And it's, like, hard to go to your, 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 your people, your constituents, and say, hey, we actually don't like these guys because they take care of the poor. They adopt these babies that we want to toss out. They're trying to convert the people we're trying to kill. Bunch of awful people. And you know, it's just like, how, how do you, I, I can't even imagine the criticism being in a meeting with these guys. And yet we have the letters where the criticism was just like, these guys are like hardcore atheists, even though they believed in one God. But Jesus came and, chained, and turned the world upside down. And he didn't do it as a wealthy or powerful person. And a lot, of the first, a lot of the early church did not acquire power to influence their community. I think that's one of the biggest lies I consistently have to remind myself is I don't need to be powerful to change the world. I don't need to have an endless amount of resources to change the world. The early church modeled that for us, how you could transform an entire community by making a decision to be generous. Let's go to Matthew 25. This is a passage we read all the time. And it's one of those passages that it's really challenging. It's extremely challenging. We're going to break down this passage and we're going to break down another passage. And then we're going to talk about our community groups as we reflect on these two passages. Let me just lead with this is an area I'm still growing in. And it's an area that prayerfully a decade from today will be a strength of mine. Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All nations will be gathered to him 
and he will separate the people one from another as a sheep, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goat. And he will put the sheep on the right and the goats on his left. The king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison. You came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king replied, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger? Or needing clothing or sick or in prison? And did not help you. He will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. They will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now, we have to be careful with parables because they're kind of they're, they're trying to make a point. We don't want to take the imagery of the parables 100 percent serious. But there are components of this comparable that is really important for us to understand when we think about what it means to follow Jesus. And. As we read through this passage, what was like the first, if you're going to put a doctrine out there, like a teaching, what do you think Jesus is trying to teach here? Like if you could sum it up in a phrase, maybe a word even better, what do you think he's trying to teach? Giving yourself to personal relationships is is key to what he was teaching. Giving yourself to personal relationships. Elaborate a little bit more. What do you mean? Well, in each of these cases, you're confronted with a situation, probably something you don't know, and you invest in them by providing for their needs. And you build a relationship. And you, you can't do that without having some kind of relationship with them. For sure. For sure. It may not be something that is like we think of a deep personal relationship, like someone you know for 25 years, but this is basic approach to humanity. For sure. Now, what, what's surprising about this particular parable? Like, there, there's a component that Jesus is telling, he, he's trying to tell you a good story, and something's off with this story, which makes it a good story. Like, what is, what is wrong with this parable? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing? Okay. That's the right <laughs> it's always the right answer when it comes to Jesus. Yes. How many of us, if you knew it was Jesus that was outside looking for something to eat, would help him? All of us in here prayerfully, if we said Jesus, Lord. You're like, is Jesus? Bro, you can stay as long as you need. Don't even worry. Don't worry about your money situation. I got you covered, man. We'll we'll welcome Jesus with open arms. 
Like it would, we would take him around town. We would treat him like Lord. And so the group that was the sheep, it became so default how they treated people in this particular parable that they didn't even know that they were doing it for Jesus. They didn't think to themselves, you know what? I'm going to serve my neighbor so I make sure I hear well done, good and faithful servant. They, it just became a part of who they were. As much as the goats, it became a part of who they weren't. Like, I don't serve people <laughs> I, unless, unless it's someone I know, someone I'm intimate with. I, and so the goats were like, listen, Jesus, if you would have made yourself clear that that was you over there, that was you over here, I would have done something. But I didn't know it was you. And that's really challenging for a lot of us. I know as for me growing up in the States, that's really how our society works. Like you help people, you know, you don't help people you don't know. Whether they're in the church or outside, you, like if a brother sent an email right now, hey, I'm coming in from um, East, East Bum Chili. I'm coming in and I'm looking to hang out. I'm like, I don't know who that brother is. Right? How many people come into a certain town and like, yo, I don't find anyone. But if we know them, we're like, oh, my friend is coming into town. We make a connection, et cetera, et cetera. Jesus is saying like, my followers just have this deep and innate love for others, a deep and innate hospitality for people that on the last day, you're going to be like, I didn't even know I was doing that for you. Like, it didn't even register that I was doing that for you. I just was doing it because I loved the person who was in front of me, which is really challenging when it comes to us serving the least of these. We've been trained personally, again, culturally, to look at those who are disadvantaged and think problem, not think solution. Like, why is this dude thirsty or hungry or whatever? They didn't go to school. They dropped out of high school, so they ruined their lives. And it's your fault, man. I don't, I don't owe you anything. I worked for what I got. You need to work for what you got. We got government programs here who can help you. We got all these different reasons to not be compassionate. And again, as I'm speaking to you guys, I'm speaking to me. These, this is the narrative, and it's like a split-second decision. It's not like I run through that whole narrative in my head as much as I don't think any of us here runs through that narrative in their head. It's just a split-second decision. I can't help you, dude. Instead of like, how, how did it even happen? I've been in Portland for a year, and I'm like, there's like two homeless guys I see consistently. I'm like, you've been here for a whole year. What's going on? And then it becomes a challenge. Like, okay, let me make an, a, a relational connection. Let me just walk in. Hey, man, I've seen you all the time. I'm like, what's going on? Who, what happened? What's your story? You know what ends up happening for me is I usually see them on my way to another appointment. What, what, what story does that sound like? Yeah. The Good Samaritan. It's, it usually happens. I'm on my way to meet with someone. And I want to keep that story. And I want to keep that appointment. I got a Bible study at 10. And I see this guy at, at 950. So I'm like, dude, I got the study. Maybe I'll see him when I get back. And then usually I never see him when I get back. It's always on my way to an appointment. And, and, and how many people I'm studying with or even disciples would give me the green light and say, bro, you wanted to love someone? Of course you could come late to this appointment. I can even see people I'm studying with say, of course you could come late. But it's just in my heart. I'm like, but I got to keep my word over here. And so this parable is challenging because Jesus is trying to help his followers understand that we are characterized by a different sort of compassion. And again, it's challenging for me because this is an area I'm still growing in. And it's an area I pray that I can mature in sooner rather than later because, not because of the consequences of being separated from God, though that is important, but I really do want to learn how to love well. I want my life to be characterized as loving well. And I think this is a teaching on that that can help us. 
And so let me ask you guys, as we look at this, what are some concerns? I know once we start talking about helping people, some concerns start bubbling in our hearts. Like, what are some concerns that you guys may be having right now? Maybe some natural objections. Fred. Well, I've always been curious why Jesus said to the righteous, whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Mm-hmm. To the unrighteous, he said, the fact that you didn't do this for, he doesn't use the word brothers. He makes a distinguish between the righteous serving people who are apparently connected to him mm-hmm. versus the unrighteous who just were doing anything mm-hmm. for anybody. And um, I, I don't know exactly what that distinction is, but I think that's a challenge for us because <coughs> I'm not sure I'm not sure that Jesus that this applies to this. You know, the way Jesus said this, does it apply to everyone or just to the brother to the connected to Christ already? That's a, that's a really good question. So I would say commentators are split <laughs> at different other people wrestling with this passage. There's other passages where it seems very clear that when they use that term brother, they're talking about fellow Israelites. Other times they're talking about Christians. And there are some exceptions where he's talking about people in general. And so commentators are split. So you could really flip a coin. Is it, do you do this for the Christians or do you do it for everyone? I think... As I, as I wrestle with it, as of today, I'm like, okay, that's a good question. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. I think if I take that principle with this teaching right here, then the application becomes expansive. But it, it, it is debated. It, it is debated. Um, Scott and then Bob. I, I was just thinking, I, I, don't think it's, I don't think they're exclusive of each other because uh, there's other places in the Bible that says that you, not to neglect the family of believers, you know, make sure you take care of them. But at the same time, there's all the stuff that Jesus has done, you know, where it's always to somebody who was not an Israelite, you know, to healing this person or that person, you know, and the, the good Samaritan thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I, I, the answer probably is both. Well, Dan, come on. Mm-hmm. Bob, then Tim. Yeah, I, um, this is a totally different subject here, or not really a different subject, but off of that subject. But basically, um, I, I remember... As, as a young Christian, sort of being conflicted, I had a situation come up one time where I, I was newly married and um, was downtown, working downtown. Uh, this is in Fort Lauderdale, actually. But, um, you know, reaching out during lunch, you know, sharing our faith. Fired up. Things like that that we were doing. And um, there, was a, there was a guy who came up to me and uh, sort of just claiming to be a Christian, you know, brother, you know, so to speak, and, uh, um, but he was homeless, I guess, for some reason, or he just came into the area, I can't remember the total thing, I think he sort of indicated like he was sort of new to the area, mm-hmm. but he, uh, he was looking for a place to stay, you know, and he was trying to ask me if I'd put him up, basically, and, uh, you know, had I been single, I probably would have done it without, without even blinking. Mm-hmm. Him wrong, <laughs> and uh, he expressed that in some different ways. And 
one of the last things that he said as he sort of was walking away is he, he was sort of mumbling like, bad fruit, bad fruit, you know. And I remember feeling really conflicted about that, you know, especially as a young Christian, it's like I was like, man, did I do the right thing? Did I do the wrong thing? You know, should I have just, you know, uh, thrown caution to the wind, you know, put my, my family or my wife in jeopardy, you know, not knowing, you know. So again, I know there's, there's, there's sort of, sort of look at that from both sides, but I think that's one of the things that can come into play for just this, this type of, you know, what we're talking about here about just people you don't know, reaching out, helping, you know, whatever, you know, there's, there's always that thing of like, oh, I gotta be careful, I might be taken advantage of, mm-hmm. could, be, could be ulterior motives here, and all, all that stuff that comes into play. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a fair concern, something you need to pray about. You know, that's part of the teachings of Jesus in Luke 14 when he's like, hate your mother, wife, brother, sister. There's a component of it where you're like, even in that situation, like having to be like, okay, how am I going to honor God? Like, I agree with you. If I thought they were dangerous, then I got to love my spouse. If I don't think they're dangerous, which is always tough because the stereotypes, when we don't get to know people, the stereotypes feed more than the actual person. Where you're like, nah, this guy's going to come in. He's going to steal my 10-year-old TV. He's going to rob me for the most, the most expensive thing I own in my life right now because my laptop, my laptop is about four years old now, so it's not even worth the $1,000 I bought it, is my wedding band, and that's $400. <laughs> After my wedding band, everything in my house depreciates significantly. <laughs> you robbed me, you wasted your time. You go in my bank account. My money's in some stocks out there somewhere, but my actual bank account, you're going to be discouraged, man. You won't be able to have a night on the town on me. But yet, I can still feel like, what if they take it? <laughs> take what? <laughs> take my book on theology? That'd be good for them. <laughs> they can learn about Jesus. <laughs> Chanel and then Sebastian. Uh, did you want oh, Tim. So your, what was your original question? I'm sorry. What are some object, objections we have to a passage like this? Yeah, so my thought, I'm going to put my Phineas hat on here for a sec. But, um, yeah. He's going to kill yeah. someone. Yeah. So there's a, there's a part of me that can definitely be, I can, I can be challenged with, like, we always use grace a lot with, like, oh, you have to have grace. Well, um, yeah, we do. But like Bob said a little bit, too, like, there, there can be, where does like being taken advantage come into play? So I guess we love each other, we love the church, everything, we love each other, we love the family, we love the community, but like the church has a problem with things starting on time. And sometimes, again, I'm putting my Phineas hat on, that can rub people the wrong way. And so I think that it's like, where does it go from being like gracious to people, but also like not being a stickler and a rule follower and trying to just be like, no, it starts like this. But it's like being respectful of the time management, I guess. Because like you said, what are some, what are the challenges, what are oppositions to this like giving to strangers? And it's like, like you said, sh- uh, having an opportunity to love someone. Yeah, but if you did that and you were an hour late every single time that you went to have a Bible study, eventually that would like try somebody's patience, right? And so it's like, yeah, it's a challenge, you gotta talk about it one on one or something. That's, that could be a challenge that I can face sometimes in that scenario. Yeah, I was speaking about a one-off situation potentially where if I did help yeah. and they wanted further help, I'd be like, okay, you should have a thing at 10, but let's meet here at 11 cool. after I'm done with the thing at 10. Yeah. Like, but I can't even get that initial conversation without interrupting my schedule for that first conversation. Yeah.
but good thought. Um, who was it? Who? Chanel did Sebastian. Sure, yeah, we're always in a rush, right? Sebastian, and then Nick, last question, and we'll go to the next scripture. So it's just going to bounce off what uh, Bob said, because uh, I can absolutely feel that way if, if someone needed to stay at my place. I would immediately assess, like, okay, how comfortable do I feel? Because not only is it about me, but it's about my wife, my kid, the safety of my family. Mm-hmm. So for me, I feel like that comes first. Mm-hmm. Um, but using my resources to say, okay, well, what can I do to find this person? I put them up in a hotel for a night? Can I find another person to have to stay with? Can I find a brother or whomever? Um, I mean, obviously, if it's a married couple situation, they were having issues, he got kicked out, he needs to stay in the place. And like, okay, well, you know, you can sit downstairs or- Come on, know, crank it out on the couch. It's just like having a hard, you know, whatever it was. But if it was like someone off the street that needed to stay at night, then let me put you up in a hotel or let me find something. To like. So I kind of, I agree with Bob in the sense of like, okay, well, you know, I gotta, I gotta figure out what's comfortable for my wife and my family because I don't wanna, maybe nothing will happen, but you never know what could happen. Yeah, I think that's, that's something that every follower of Jesus should pray deeply about. And it takes, it, it takes just sometimes just five minutes just to slow down and say, what am I concerned about? What I think could happen, et cetera. Like um, some, most of the time, like um, Chanel was mentioning, most homeless people, do have mental health challenges, but they're not trying to fight anyone. If you notice, they're usually trying to hide from you until they want money. Until they're hungry enough, then they come out, but then they go in the corners. They're really trying not to be seen. And, not, and so if they came into your home nine times out of ten, they'll pick a spot in a corner and they'll stay there the whole time and really try to stay out of your way. And that's just because, you know, it's, it, it's shameful. Like, is this a real shameful thing? But I, I still think you should assess and assess well. You know what I mean? So I'm not, encouraging, I'm not encouraging people not to assess. If it seems like a very dangerous situation, then alternative means come into play. Like, again, I don't think it's unchristian to use what the government's already providing. I don't think, but I just think it's just worth thinking about. I think nine times out of ten, we instantly assume, because I don't know you, you are danger. Like, how many of us grew up with stranger danger? 
I grew up with Stranger Danger. You know, you just see someone, you're like, danger, <laughs> run. And that's how they feel when we're evangelizing, right? They want to, <laughs> like, hey, can I talk to you about Jesus? You really don't want to talk about Jesus. You're like, I really do. I really do. And so I think it's just really important that we even recognize potentially that bias in us once yeah. we see someone like, yeah. oh, actually, I'm, just, I'm reacting to what I think you're going to do versus the reality, Fred. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so the Christians, for instance, were known that when there was a plague somewhere, the Christians would flood into the city to take care of the sick, often at the risk of their own lives. And the Romans were like, what on earth are you doing? But they would go in and they'd die to save other people. They'd go in and take the dead, the people who had died, and give them a proper burial. You know, and uh, they risked their lives to to do this and that's very convicting very and i think we we do have to confront whether our own supposed fears are fears or selfishness Um, i know i talked to a brother in london the hope group in london they actually take homeless people into their homes they set them up and help them find jobs and get the training they give them a place where they have access to a telephone the church there actually does bring homeless people into the individual homes, not just sending them to some shelter. Mm. That was very convicting. Yeah. Um, So it's something we need to wrestle with in our heart. What, you know, it's... Absolutely. It's convenient to avoid that. We're going to, hopefully we get to the slide, but we're going to get there and potentially how we could grow in this if that is a challenge for you personally. Nick? And then we'll go to the next slide. I'll be quick. I mean, you kind of touched on it, but um, I've had several interactions with people in Portland that are not there uh, mentally. They're, they're just on a different planet. And so whatever they're saying to me, it's like I, I'm not quite sure how to respond, and I don't know how I can help you. Because you know, some people have... I don't understand what they're saying. Some people, all they can say is something about healthcare. And it's like, I, I, I don't work in healthcare. I don't know how to help you. So I, I think in those interactions, um, I think I assume that they're a threat because sometimes they're agitated mm-hmm. um, or they have been in the past. Uh, and then sometimes it's just, I, I honestly don't know how to help you. And, so I, I just leave. Yeah. Or I keep walking. Yeah, and again, these are things to process. I know a number of homeless people would never ask to stay at your house because they're equally scared of you, believe it or not. Uh, what if I chose the wrong person to ask myself to stay at their house? <laughs> you know, some disciples want to stay at our house. They're scared of us. But um, they are. <laughs> like, I don't want to stay with that brother. He might read the Bible to me the whole day. <laughs> Ruin the night. <laughs> Let's go to um, Luke chapter 16. Can I get someone to read Luke chapter 16, verse 19 to 31? Again, the goal is to bring awareness. I don't want anyone to leave here feeling, if the Holy Spirit is convicting you of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come, then I want you to leave with that. But just know I did not intend for you to feel guilty about who you were. But if you're convicted, then let the Holy Spirit do his work in your life. Luke 16, 19 to 31. Can I get someone to read that, Barb? There was a rich man. 
sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here from here to you cannot, nor can anyone across anyone cross from over there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Okay. So like all parables, like I said, Jesus is usually sharing a parable and he tells a really great story. And usually the tell is what's wrong with the story. What is wrong with this story? And I know the answer is tempting nothing. No, there's something wrong with this story that's intended to teach us. There's something off with this story. Okay, kind of. Did the rich man do anything wrong? He didn't know. Or he's got the, I guess, like he did, he said below, he had the scriptures, so. He didn't say Lazarus. Yeah, he was at his door every day. Okay, Lazarus. Anthony. He didn't have any compassion on Lazarus. He just wanted him. Well, actually, he did a little bit, right? Because he, he allowed him to sit outside of his gate. Like, there, there was a degree of compassion. Like, how many of us, would, if we saw someone, like, setting up shop in front of our place, we actually would have to get them out of there. How many of us would call someone and be like, I actually don't want you setting up shop right here. We have neighborhood committees that prevent people from setting up shop in front of our place. But he, he, he actually did a... If everyone in the community was looking at this rich man, they would have been like, that, that's a really good dude right there. He's allowed him to stay here. Because who's going to go through his gates? A rich man. And they could share with him. So he probably got something, maybe not more, but he probably was well, better off than most of the other people who were in his position. Like, imagine hanging outside of Jeff Bezos' place. <laughs> Prayerfully, they'll hook you up. But usually they probably don't even have cash, right? They're all like straight credit. They're like, do you have a Venmo? You're like, I don't even have a phone. I'm homeless. It's a maybe. But, like, just imagine that. So he actually, all things considered, this was pretty cool. So what did he do wrong? What did you say, Joyce? We don't know. Okay, kind of. He kind, Jesus tells you. He actually tells you, not Jesus, but the person tells you what he did wrong. Was it what he spent his money on? 
Not, not necessarily. He served him out, kind of. What did he say that he wanted to go do once he realized there was a chasm? Yeah, and he couldn't. So what was, what was his reply then? How many brothers did he have? That was the problem. He had a six brother Lazarus outside his gate the whole time and he never helped him. He would not have treated any of his other brothers that way. He would have pulled them in, but he instead clearly delineated my brothers are my blood. Instead of this person right here who obviously knows Abraham, the rich man knows Abraham. They're both like Father Abraham. I know Abraham. He's like, we have the same God, so therefore we're family, but you can't see me as such in this situation. And that was his problem. And so he created a false chasm by keeping him outside of his gates. And so in the next life, there was a legit chasm that he couldn't get on the other side now. So he created the first barrier, and in likewise, in his judgment, it became a barrier for him. So he's like, I need something now. I need help. And he's like, we can't help you. The same degree to which he couldn't help him. Does that make sense? And so this, this is important because this is what prevents us from treating people like projects is when we start to view them as brothers and sisters. Unless you come from a complex where you view your brothers and sisters as projects as well. <laughs> Generally speaking, <laughs> some of us have those complexes, and that's okay. We got to get therapy and we need help. But if we don't have that complex, and I'm not making light of therapy, I'm actually for it. So if you do, you should, if you have the resource to get therapy, you should get it. But um, if you don't have those complex, we usually treat our siblings better than that. Like, how many of you would allow your brother or sister to sleep outside your house if they were struggling? Sebastian's like, yeah, I think I'll let my sister stay out there. (laughs) And then we'll get Luke chapter 25 on Sebastian. (laughs) But the idea is he didn't treat him like a brother. Does that make sense? And so it's really challenging for us because, again, we're not trained to think this way. Everything in our culture has trained us to think poverty, immoral. Like poverty, immoral. You're poor. You did something wrong. You're sitting outside the gate. That's your fault. I don't owe you anything. And, and really, even within our American culture, as family, how, how many of you know family who fight over inheritance? They're like, we'll knock it. We'll knock drag out, man. We'll go, we'll go down with this ship for that money. Like even we don't even know how to treat each other as siblings. And so it's really challenging to allow the Holy Spirit and the teachings of Jesus to radically transform us. And say, okay, I need to imitate Christ. I can't imitate what I see in the culture and what I see in myself. And so when he says, you have the law and the prophets, if you've ever read the Old Testament, the the first five books, if you've ever read the prophets, even if you read the Psalms, God deeply desires that Israel people, the people of Israel be characterized by deep generosity where they leave borders, where they don't take someone else's property, where they have kinsmen, redeemers. There is just so many things baked into the law of Moses that, like, in theory, if it was faithfully lived out, there would never be generational poverty because of things like the Jubilee, because of things like after seven years I release you from that. There would never be generational poverty. And yet Israel, like all the other nations, still have poverty because people were greedy. And they started treating things as if they were their own instead of who gave it to them. And so they had a, um, a scarcity mindset instead of an abundance mindset, which is really challenging. Because everyone in here, relative to the rest of the world, 
even the most disadvantaged financially in here is more wealthy than the vast majority of the world. And so it's really hard to be like, I don't have Jeff Bezos money, though. Like, he's greedy, which I don't know him. He's probably one of the most generous people in the entire world. But he has 17 point something billion dollars. If he gave me one billion, I'd retire, man. I'll still do what I'm doing, but I'll do that at my pace and in my schedule, man. Wow, $17 billion. I wouldn't even know what I would do with that money. I'll get a platinum chain just to say I got one. And then I'll donate it to someone else. Now I wouldn't get a platinum chain. All right. The, is that clear? I thought it was going to come out a little bit more clear than that. It says aware, ponder, value, the, behave, the action behavioral gap, reprioritize, and then own. Is that relatively clear? Can you kind of relatively see that? Okay. So there is a educational psychologist who was trying to figure out how do you get people to change? How do you get people to grow? Like there is a gap between awareness of something and owning something. And honestly, I think this is true even of our own discipleship. Like we could read the scriptures all day long, but how many of us actually follow everything we read? You know, that there, there generally is a degree of a hypocrisy gap. I read this, but I actually don't practice what I read. Even though I see it, I just don't do it. <clears throat> and so he breaks it down into five stages. To become aware. So you, someone brought the information to your mind. Maybe it's your first time ever reading the passage. It, in reference to the least of these, maybe it's the first time you ever read it. So you've been brought away. Ponder. This is where many of us get stuck. Well, we get the man, something needs to change. You're probably going to get in your car tonight, talk to, talk to um, your roommates, your spouse, your friends. Something needs to change. We need to do something. And you probably think about it a lot. And then tomorrow morning, you kind of drop it and it doesn't get picked up again because the, the busyness of life occurs. Value. <clears throat> That's when you go from pondering to occasionally doing something. Maybe you become the seasonal, um, the seasonal person. Maybe you're like... Every Thanksgiving, I'm going to go to a, um, a food pantry. I'm going to go to main needs. I'm going to give. This holiday, I'm going to do that. I'm going to set it up like three or four times in my schedule. I'm going to do this. But then the rest of your life isn't characterized by the, the newfound awareness that this is an expectation. Now, do you see the gap between three and four? It's massive. It's massive. Four is where it gets really interesting. That It becomes where you prioritize. There's intentional planning. Now you're spending money on resources, like you're starting to read, you're joining groups, you're doing everything. You're like, I want this to be a part of who I am. You know, the same thing happens with like dieting and exercising. It's like at this point, you're the person who bought all the shakes. You got all the different shakes and you're gonna like shake it up and you're, it's going down. And you're going for it. Now, you're still not at own yet. It's not become a lifestyle yet. It's not become something that deeply characterizes you. It's still at the stage of, I've made some additions, but this is not who I naturally am. Maybe you, walk, you wake up and you're doing more, you're serving more, but you still have that inclination like, I wish I wasn't doing more and I wish I wasn't serving more. I wish other people could do it. So you're wrestling with it, but you're actually doing it. And then once you own it, everything else in your life starts to revolve around what you do. You know, like for those of you who are consistently reading your Bible, at this point, your whole schedule is built around when you're going to read your Bible. You already know what you're going to do. 
You're like, at 8 a.m., I'm going to open my Bible no matter what. So everything needs to work around that 8 a.m. appointment. If you go on prayer walks at 6 a.m., at 6 a.m., I'm going to have my prayer walk. Everything needs to work around it. I'm going to make sure I go to bed in time so I can get this prayer walk. It starts to like, it, it becomes so important in your schedule that other people know when they're impinging upon it. I believe number five is where the, the goats are. I mean the sheep. The goats are probably anywhere, maybe, maybe, I don't know. But I would definitely say the sheep are number five. Where it just became a part of who they were. Like generosity has just become a part of who they are. They build their schedule around generosity. They slow down enough to be generous. And so um, someone said earlier, like, how do we do this? This learning curve takes a long time. It takes intentional habits. Our bodies need to be engaged with our hearts. And so maybe right now, the hardest thing is, let me practice generosity with people I do know and people I do trust. If there's a Christian that I know who needs a place to sleep, if one of you guys get arrested, maybe you should visit them. Like, hey man, you got arrested, what's going on? And <laughs> give them a little lecture. Um, but it takes time. It takes a lot of time. Discipleship takes a lot of time and a long time to be like Jesus and requires our body. I think for a long time, we've been trained to think you are what you think. I would argue you are what you love and, you, and what you love is what you do. And so we have to get to the point where our, our, our actions start to form us. And so where do we begin? Start with a community group. Take a vested interest in others without making them feel like a project. Now, if you're in the community group and you know you One need moment. help, Siri, you need to mind your business. <laughs> if you're in a community group and you know you need to help, need help, feel zero shame. Guys, we should not shame anyone for needing help. If they need help and direction, we could give both of those things without shaming people. Maybe someone was living lavish and they shouldn't and you could correct them. You could help them like, okay, moving forward, this is how you could do your budget, but you don't like, how dare you? How did you get this way? What's going on with you? You're such a derelict. When people ask for help, it is one of the most vulnerable things in the world to do because you are opening yourself up to rejection. And the rejection, if you've never been in a position that you need to receive financial help or emotional help, that rejection, putting yourself out there, this feels 10 times it just feels like the heaviest burden in the entire world when someone rejects you. And so when you seek out help, there, it, it, it's, it's real vulnerable. And so I just want to encourage you guys as you're helping someone, acknowledge, even if they made mistakes, you're like, okay, we're going to talk about how this cannot happen again moving forward. We want to set you up for victory, but I love you, I understand, and let's move forward. Think about Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. Now, she didn't come forward and say, I need help. She got caught. But he was very uh, compassionate with her. All right, build friendships with the least of these in your community. Now, most of us do not live in communities that have the least of these. Most of the church, generally speaking, is we, we live in the well-to-do areas. So we don't really have that. So I'll give an example of what you can do. Visit the local laundromat on the other side of town. What I mean by the other side of town? The place where there are the least of these. Once a week, just do your laundry. You get to know so many people in that community. It's like, hey. What are you doing here? I'm washing my gym clothing. Where do you work out? I work out at Planet Fitness. I could bring one guest every week. You want to come? And they're like, absolutely, man. I want to do Pilates with you. And you're like, absolutely. Let's do it. 
I've been looking for a Pilates partner. Uh, I actually don't do Pilates, by the way. <laughs> but you can spark conversation. But if you go there weekly, anywhere you visit weekly, eventually the people who are consistently there do spark up conversation with you. And so you get an opportunity to make a legitimate friend. And maybe that friend doesn't need your help, but maybe they know someone else who can use your help. Yesterday on campus, we were evangelizing, and this one guy was like, I, I don't have time to do Bible studies and all this other stuff. But what he did tell me and Connor was he, he put himself out there, and I told him, absolutely. He's like, this sounds crazy, but we're doing this big event next week Thursday for special needs kids. Are you willing to help us? I'm like, dude, of course I'm willing to help. What time? And he's like, 2 p.m.? I'm like, bro, we'll make it work. We'll be there. Connor's like, I'm getting out of work. I'll show up late. I'm like, yeah, but we'll make it work. I could probably even get volunteers. You tell me how many you need, and I'll put it out there. But you definitely got one. I'll show up. But he was like, really? I'm like, yeah. He's like, man, Christians are so cool. That's what he said. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, man, Christians are cool. Shout out to the Christians. Uh, but he wasn't interested in studying the Bible, so I don't know what to make of that. Um, but I do want to help him. And I do want to help the people who need help, the, 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 the um, children with special needs. Join others. I didn't form that group. He formed it. It's a group of seven students here. It's called Best Buddies. And they're helping um, children with special needs get connected and, and different things and helping them. I don't know what else they're doing, but I just told them I was on board. And then bring a friend. Bring a friend. This is a good place to start. It really needs to become a habit like everything else we've been talking about, proclaiming the gospel, serving the poor, reconciliation. This needs to become our habits. This needs to become who we are when they say, what does it mean to be a member of the Casco Bay Church? We point to what we do instead of what we believe. Yeah. Like that's the goal for where we're going. Like this is what it means to be a member of the Casco Bay Church. Yeah. And prayerfully, that's sooner rather than later where we're characterized by what we do as opposed to what we believe. Hopefully what we do accentuates what we believe. So that's the, that's the end of that particular discussion. Any thoughts or concerns? Yeah, okay. just, just one thing. It seems like, you know, in a lot of our discussions, we're talking about the, the homeless, and that, you know, that's definitely a, a need, you know, but helping the homeless is challenging, you know, to figure out how to do that, how to respond. But there's so many other, like, populations of people who need yeah. help, you know, and, you know, the elderly, Children with special needs. Immigrants, the, you know, um, you know, special needs kids, and, and you know, uh, you know, there's just so many sort of volunteer opportunities, food pantries, and, and all of these places are, are you know very safe, and, and some, sometimes you can bring your kids, and, and which is which is which is amazing, and, and you're really in touch consistently with people with needs, so you can build build relationships with, with the other people who are working there and, and with the people you're trying to help. So I think yeah. it's kind of an awareness thing and you know I think even the this parable of the, the rich rich young young ruler, you know, I, I think you know that Lazarus was right there by his doorstep. He saw him every day. Um, so I, I think you know just by being more aware of the needs around us. Yeah. Always. I mean, he was just unaware of Lazarus, and I, I think we're very unaware of, of the needs in our, our community because, you know, we don't, 
get out enough, and we don't think about it enough, and we don't, you know, we don't want to go places where we normally don't go, and, and whatnot. So. Yeah, no, and, and I do want to just communicate that. Even though I was primarily talking about the poor, it's really anyone who needs help. I think that, that, that parable of the, the, the sheep and the goat would have fallen to anyone who needed help. Yeah, I think there's a tendency, has been a tendency in our fellowship to feel like we need to invent something and we need to do something that we get known for. Rather than simply looking around, I mean, one of the things that's impressive to me in Portland compared to where we were in, in Boston was how many groups there are that you can tap into here. Yep. Uh, you know, we, we've been working with the food pantry up the street. It's been a great, great blessing to us. Um, but like you mentioned, main needs, there's, there are people, there's a group of people who go out on Friday and Saturday night and just help people make it home after they get, after they get themselves soused at the bars. Come on. Um, they go out and they look for homeless people who are too cold to manage themselves and give them food and water and so forth. And, and you know, there are so many organizations in this city. We don't have to invent anything. We just have to put ourselves out and sacrifice our time and effort to be part of it. Yeah, heart is a big issue for sure. Scott? You know, um, something happened to me a couple of years ago. We were in uh, the other Portland. Oregon, Come on, man. Through, and they're having a huge heat wave, like 113 degrees or so. And we were out, and someone came up to me asking for money. He was not there mentally. But it occurred to me at that time, it was like, yeah, I could give him $5 or a dollar, but you know, I wish I had some, a bottle of water, you know, to give You know, I mean, I think it's thinking outside of, you know, your pocketbook. You know, we could do so much. I mean, how much? How much access do people who have had to have to fresh water, you know, who live, who are homeless, you know? And that's something that's easy, and it's something that you can give without any kind of consequence, right? But it's a huge positive for them. And that's the beauty of conversations like this. Like, it, 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 um, I think Lincoln just mentioned it, awareness. It starts bringing awareness, and the ideas start piling up on how we can help. But then the other challenge comes through the execution, right? Like it starts piling up and we're like, we want to help. And then it's like, then it starts crunching into our schedule. And that's where we have to make decisions to honor Jesus, uh, Tim. So I, don't, I know you don't want to sit here and talk to stories the rest of the night, but um, I'll never, there was one time when I was driving from the Guam campus back to where I was living in Portland. And it was the middle of winter, winter's coming up, in case you guys didn't know. Um, but it was like, February and there was like five feet of snow, some crazy thing. And there was a van that had skidded off the road and was off in the ditch. And the guy was in the car. He was, car was not damaged, he was just stuck in the snow. I was driving like a sedan, it actually might have been Iggy's car, I don't remember. Um, I was like, I cannot pull this man out of this plane. So let me just pull over and make sure he's okay. So I like pulled over and went and like, hey, you okay? He's like, yeah, I'm just waiting for AAA. And I was like, I'll wait with you. And I'm not kidding, I sat in that car for three and a half hours with that guy. It was like 2 a.m. by the time I left. And I, it was a crazy, crazy experience. Mm -hmm. Just because we were talking about how we built the house and like got the- Come on, was that you, so, Mark? 
He was on his way to his job, and he was like, I'm not going to be able to make it in. And uh, if you want to know more details, feel free to ask, because it's a crazy thing that happened. But he was just super funny, and I got to know him really well. And I never saw him again. Come like, on. I've never seen him since. So a word of advice, if you see someone on the side of the road in the winter, <laughs> talk to them. See if they need help. Even if you can't push the truck out of the snow, just see if they need help. Amen. So that's one little thing. Yeah. Or call me out. <laughs> Amen. Um, yeah. The church is awesome. Let's continue to grow and try to shrink that hypocrisy gap. We are done. Amen.